Thank you, Aiden, for that <clears throat> reading. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. If you're visiting with us, I hope the things that I present to you are beneficial. I hope this service and the assembly is uplifting and encouraging. I see we got the whole Dagley crew here with us today. Came up here to dry out your sinuses, I guess. Tricks on you, we got rain. This morning, we're going to continue studying in the book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> and as we've studied through 1 Corinthians, kind of, for those that you may not know, kind of catch up where we are as you break out the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul is dealing with a lot with problems in the church, and he's talking about divisions in the first four chapters. There were some that were following after Paul, after Apollos. And as he works through that, he also gets into their maturity or their lack of maturity and where they should be. We kind of took a brief pause there and talked about valuing souls because at the root of all of this, that is the problem. They didn't have a proper value on one another's souls or those that are outside the kingdom souls. And we looked at that and how important it was. In chapters 5 through 6, he's dealing with depravity, sexual immorality, them taking to court, each other to court and suing them in public courts. And he's dealing with these problems and he moves into personal problems in chapter 7 through 10. In chapter 7, he deals with this, the subject of marriage. 8 through 10, he's talking about meats that are sacrificed to idols. In chapter 11, he's dealing with worship problems. In there is nested that, that chapter, that what we call the love chapter, and he shows how that love should go forward or upward to God and also throughout your relationships with one another and other people. In chapter 15, <clears throat> he's dealing with problems concerning the resurrection. Now, we're kind of doing a little bit of a mini-series here in the midst of this in chapter 8 through 10, and he's been dealing with the subject of meats offered to idols and kind of reviewing where we were in chapters 8 and 9. It's very important that they understood something, and this is where Paul introduces the subject of love. It's not chapter 12 like we oftentimes think. He begins this process of understanding love and how important it is actually in chapter 8. And he emphasizes some things there. There's a contrast between knowledge and love, whereas knowledge tends to generalize, but love individualizes. Love looks at the person and their problems and their state and their relationship with God. <clears throat> love looks at a situation and that love evaluates a situation. It doesn't just sit there and go make a decision based solely on knowledge. And he contrasts that at the end of chapter 8, talking about the weak brother and his conscience being uh, sinned against. And he takes those and he says, those that you are stronger that are taking these liberties and you're causing the weak brother to fall away, the sin is on you. Because love considers Christ. And he emphasized the sin being on them. That weak brother Christ also died for just as much as he died for you. So they had these liberties and they had these freedoms, but they needed to understand how that worked with love. And Paul uses his apostleship as a very specific illustration of that. And he talks about the fact that, hey, just, I have the right to use this and get money. Essentially, pay the evangelist is what he was saying. He had that right, and he uses multiple illustrations. Do you 
Does the person join an army and is he made to supply his own food and everything else? Is the person that plants the vineyard, isn't he allowed to eat from that which he planted? Well, of course he is. And Paul uses that very specific illustration in his life. But Paul gives a caveat. He says, I didn't take any money from you. Not a single dime for Paul's work. As a matter of fact, if you look historically at what Paul did when he was in Corinth, he actually worked. He was a tent maker. So Paul says there is this irony in here of the knowledge. Those that would say that I have the knowledge, I'm firm in where I stand, I know what I know, and this weak. And Paul drives that home by dealing with his motivation for why he does what he does. He says, to the Jew, I became the Jew. To those that were outside the law, I became outside the law. To those that are weak, I became weak. And he says in verse 23, here's why. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I become these things for the sake of the gospel. Not just that, but that I might share with them in its blessings. So Paul's motive in doing what he did and the driving force in all of this conversation is about the gospel and sharing in that gospel and the blessings with others. It was never about Paul and what he's trying to drive home to them is it's not about you. It's about the gospel, the sake of the gospel and sharing in that blessing with other people. Now as Paul goes into chapter 10, He pivots and uses an illustration that we still use 2,000 years later. Why? Because it works. Sports. And he talks about the athlete. And he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And I think we sometimes tend to forget the in all things piece of that. I want you to think about the athlete. He doesn't exercise self-control in his workouts only. The runner doesn't exercise self-control in only running. Where else do they exercise self-control? They exercise self-control in their diet, their sleep, and their moderation of the food that they intake. And he says it is in all things. And the Christian life isn't any different. You can't be in self-control in one aspect in your life. And that's the challenge, isn't it? That's the challenge. You know, there are some things that I have great self-control in. I don't have a problem with pornography. But you know what? I do have a problem with a temper. I do have a problem exercising self-control in that way. Am I complete? Am I running the race properly? Am I doing what Paul said? I need to grow in those ways. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one is beating the air. I discipline my body 
and I bring it under subjection, under control. One of the fallacies in Western Christianity is that Christianity is just spiritual only. And it has nothing to do with the physical. That my relationship with God is my relationship with God. It has nothing to do with anything surrounding me. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Multiple times, illustration after illustration, the conduct of our lives points to that relationship with God. The fruit of our lives points to that relationship with God. Whenever you read passages such as Galatians chapter 5, where he's talking about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all of those things, those are all things that can be seen in our lives. And he's saying we need to bring all of this together for the purpose of self-denial and bringing it under control. Bringing our bodies, our lives, and our minds in subjection to God and to Christ. Now, Paul turns in chapter 10 to give a very real understanding of what this means in self-denial and application. And he goes to the Old Testament. You know, Paul was doing then what we do now. Paul was teaching them to learn from the mistakes of previous generations. And I think we all want that. If you're a parent or a grandparent, as your children get older, you definitely want them to learn from your mistakes. One of the things that I am extremely grateful for from Boys Ranch and me growing up at Boys Ranch is that it saved my life, to be completely honest. It gave, they gave me a lot of tools that I probably otherwise would not have had so that I could be successful. But there were some things they missed on. We didn't talk about finances. We didn't talk about the dangers of credit card debt. We didn't talk about, you know, savings and the principle of savings. That, that thing that if you have 10 grand in, a, in an IRA or something by the time you're 26 and you don't put any more money in it, you can be a millionaire by, your, by the time you're six. I didn't know that. They didn't emphasize the necessity for insurance. My first car was a 1986 Ford Escort baby blue piece of junk. Didn't have a radio, didn't have an air conditioner. When I first met my wife, I don't know how the subject came up it's about insurance, and I told her I didn't. She's like, you got to have insurance. And I was like, paid $500 for the car, I would pay for the car every year. I'm not getting insurance. Well, you wind up in a jail cell for too many no, no insurance tickets, and you're like, okay, now I need insurance. And you want your kids to learn from those things. You know, my kids, when they get older, there are probably quite a few things they're going to look at mom and dad and go, you know, you probably missed it a little bit. You know, Dad, you had a bad temper. You weren't very good with the emotional thing. You're kind of ugly. 
That's not my car. Okay. But what they will not ever be able to say is that mom and dad didn't talk to us about finances. Mom and dad didn't talk to us about our friendships and those that we hang around. Probably mom and dad just probably hammered us to death with that and we were sick of it. They're not going to be able to say that. You know, the other thing about children and generations learning from previous generations is it's very frustrating. I can imagine that my mom and dad were very frustrated with some of the mistakes that I made that they had told me not to make. And I'm frustrated with my own children when they make the exact same mistakes that I made. And you know, when that happens, you want to pull them aside and gently yet lovingly punch them in the throat. Not full power, like 2%. I'm kidding. Partially. It's very frustrating. Now, I want you to know what Paul does here. I don't know if it's out of a point of frustration as well as a point of education, but it's the same thing. I want you to think about as we read these next verses, the problems that Israel had, the problems that Corinth had, it's the same problems 2,000 years later. It's like we're not learning from the previous generations. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, <clears throat> that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. I want you to notice what Paul does here and how he emphasizes the word all. Five times. In those four verses, does he emphasize the word all? And he talks about them being led out of Egypt under a cloud. And if you'll read the story in the books of Exodus and the recount in Deuteronomy about how they were led by a pillar of cloud during the day and a fire at night in the sky. And that is what, what they were followed. And he talks about them that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. And he's referencing that cloud that they followed and them going through the parted Red Sea. I want you to think about what he's illustrating here. As he's talking about the subject of baptism, it was the same thing that Christian baptism does. By them being baptized under the cloud in the sea, they were taking out, taken out of the ownership and control of Egypt and Pharaoh and they were placed in the ownership and control of God and the authority of Moses. Just the same as our Christian baptism today takes us out from the ownership and authority of Satan and lifts us into the owner and authorityship of Christ. Paul is connecting that for them. And he says they ate of the they all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual water. And he says, and the spiritual rock that followed them was Christ. 
You know, there's a couple of instances in Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 20 in which God instructed Moses to first, in Exodus chapter 17, to strike the rock and the water came out of the rock. And then in Numbers chapter 20, he told him to speak to the rock and water would come out. Moses failed on the second count of that. But Paul points back to that. And I know when you do some research and study on this, there's all kinds of things about what this means, that the rock was Christ. And I really think people with greater minds than, than, I, than I would ever imagine having, I really think they overcomplicate it. Paul is focusing on two things. Number one, the fact that Christ has been, always will be, and was there during that time. If you read in the Old Testament, it is not void of the impact, influence, and sustainability of Christ. And Paul is wanting them to understand that, that Christ has always been. The second thing, it's an analogy like what Christ talked about in John chapter 15. Where Christ said, I am the vine and you are the branches. The point is, is that Christ has always provided the spiritual sustenance that mankind has ever needed. He did it in the Old Testament. He did it whenever he was with the apostle or with the disciples and he was teaching. He did it on the cross and he's still doing it today in Corinth. As well as Amarillo 2,000 years later. Moses records a song in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 34 when he, where he refers to that rock and he talks about God and Christ being that rock in interpretations of the Word. That Christ is the source of all support that you and I will ever need and has always been that source of spiritual sustenance. I want us to see what Paul does as he turns from verse 5, turns into verse 5. He now switches the word all, all to the word most. And the context isn't good. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were overthrown in the wilderness. All were God's people, but most of them did not please Him. All were recipients of God's grace and mercy, but most of them were not grateful or faithful. If ever there has been clarity on the subject of whether or not we can fall out of God's good graces. It's in this next few verses. God goes back to Israel and says, all of these people were a part, or excuse me, Paul goes back to Israel and says, all of these people were a part of the recipient Reception of God's grace and mercy. But with most of them, God wasn't pleased. 
Now, why is that important? Why is that important for the church at Corinth? And why is that important for you and I? Well, in Corinth, they had a problem. They weren't being very loving to one another. They weren't taking each other's soul into account. They were flaunting their liberties. And they were causing a lot of damage to one another. Ultimately, what Paul is driving home in chapter 8, he said, you are in sin. There is great danger that is right in front of you in your relationship with God and Christ. Let me show you how that worked out for Israel. These things took place as examples. And I know oftentimes we go to this verse and we go, hey, this is a good reason to study the Old Testament. And that's very true. But in its context, the weight of it is this. You need to understand the position that you're in right now. Because I'm going to show you the position you're in by looking at Israel. And he's going to give them clarity. Do not be idolaters. Do not indulge in sexual immorality. Do not tempt or test Christ. Do not grumble or murmur. And he looks at some very specific things and talks about some very specific things. But I think it's very important that we look at what he's talking about. Israel decided to make an idol or a god after seeing that Moses delayed after coming down after he went up to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 32. They worshipped a false god. What was the result? 3,000 Israelites lost their lives by the sword of the Levites. At the council of Balaam, both Midian and Moab sent harlots to seduce the Israelites in Numbers chapter 25. What was the result? 23 to 24,000 people lost their lives. In the wilderness, after learning that the Edomites would not allow Israel to cross through their land, they had to take a different route, and it was a longer path. And on that path, they began to complain about this spiritual food, this manna that God had given their manna that God had given them. What was the result? God sent snakes to bite and kill them. We don't have a number in Numbers chapter 21 and verse 6, but it says much people of Israel died. When it comes to murmuring, there are multiple instances, but two of the greater ones is in Numbers chapter 14. They all murmured against God when the twelve spies returned with their report. In Numbers chapter 16, there was a man by the name of Korah that led a rebellion. What were the results after they began to murmur and complain against God? Well, in the results of the first example, when they complained against God, when the 12 spies returned, all people 20 years and older who complained 
wandered in the wilderness and died. The second one in Korah's rebellion. Korah was a man that came to Moses and Aaron and said, Hey, why are you any better than us? We've all been through the same thing and done the same things as you have. And Moses was fearful for this man's life. And God set up a situation in which he showed who his man was. And at the end of that, the result was that Korah, his family, all 250 princes of the Danonites that were involved, 15,000 people died because of their rebellion. In most of these instances, I want you to be aware of something. And in many of the instances that are referenced in the Old Testament, there was a great amount of influence exerted on a larger number of people by a smaller group of people. And the impact time and time and time again was devastating. Not only in a physical sense in the fact that there was lives that were lost, but in a spiritual sense and that Israel time and time again was led astray from God by this influence. You not see the parallels at the church in Corinth in Israel. At the end of this, Paul gives another warning. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Back once again to chapter 8, there were those that had the knowledge and the understanding. There were certain liberties that they were allowed to partake in. They understood that. But they were doing it to the harm of their brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the driving impetus of all of this. And he wants them to understand, you may have the knowledge, and you may think you stand, and you may think you're strong, and because you're in that position, it is you that needs to take caution. There's no greater example of that than Moses himself. If you want this question answered about being able to fall out of the grace of God, Moses is a pretty good example. So we told you, there were, we talked about there were two instances in which water flowed from a rock. The first one was Exodus chapter 17. God told Moses to strike the rock. In Numbers chapter 20, it's a similar situation. The people are complaining, they're whining. Moses, you brought us out here to die again. We don't have any water. The cattle don't have any water. So Moses says, goes to God, him and Aaron says, what do we do? And God says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Tell the rock to yield its water. What does Moses do? Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. Moses didn't do exactly as God said he did, 
told him to, did he? Think about this for just a second. Moses had some liberty here, didn't he? God didn't tell him with any specificity exactly what he should say. He just told him, you need to speak to the rock. Moses, in his frustration and his anger, gets up there. First and foremost, the problem was, who did he give the glory to? We. Not God. We. Second, he didn't speak to the rock. He struck it. Here was the result of that. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you should not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Did Moses not believe in God? Is that what that word means? No. Moses didn't have his faith in God by his lack of obedience. Time and time again, the New Testament authors connect faith and obedience. Why was that so necessary? He does it in Jude. He does it in 1st and 2nd Peter. He does it in 1st Corinthians. He does it in Romans. This connection over and over and over again about faith and obedience. Why is that necessary? Because they had the same problem we do. It wasn't mere acknowledgement. That faith stands on a proper obedience. And this is what Paul is driving home when he says, you need to take heed because you're going to fall. You're not going to be any different than Israel. And their confidence and their arrogance, time and time and time again, and they fell every single time. Moses included. I want you to think of the context. Paul has been hammering them now for ten and a half chapters. And the weight of their sin is probably almost unbearable to them. If you read this consecutively, you feel pretty bad. If you internalize all of the things that Paul is talking about, you feel pretty guilty. And you become acutely aware of some of the strengths, things that you think are strengths, and the great weaknesses that you have in life. But Paul pivots here and gives them some comfort. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted 
beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. And I know we read this passage a lot out of its context, and we take comfort in this, and we should. But once again, leaving it in context. Number one, there's no temptation that has overtaken you that's not common to man. It's like what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. All of these things that he has done, there's nothing new under the sun. There is no new temptation under the sun. He just provided that illustration and all of these different things that Israel went through. And he says, you're dealing with the exact same problems. You're dealing with idolatry. You're dealing with sexual immorality. You're dealing with tempting God. You're dealing with complaining and murmuring. This isn't new. And there's no temptation that it is new. But your God is faithful. He's faithful that He will give you an out so that you are not going to be in a position that you succumb to the temptation. And I want you to notice a word that we oftentimes overlook in this passage. That you may be able to endure it. Endure. I think when we read this passage sometimes... We almost want a supernatural event in which God opens a door and, oh, here's your way out. That's not how that works. What are the examples that Paul had just given them? Did Israel not have the same temptations? Did Israel not have the same faithful God that was going to give them the way out? the way and the ability to endure their temptations? Think about it. Whenever Moses was up on the mountain, what was their way out? God had just brought you out of Egypt. He had just walked you through the Red Sea. He was guiding you by a cloud and fire. What was your way out? Relying on the faithful God. When it came to complaining and murmuring about water and food, what was the way out? It was their faithful God who time and time again gave them water and supplied them with that water. He gave them supernatural food that came down every morning that they could eat. When it came to sexual immorality, what did God give them? A wife? It's not some supernatural amazing thing and some door is open for us. Oftentimes, it's a lot more simple than what we think. But the problem is still the same. Israel didn't do it. The church in Corinth wasn't do it. And we don't do it. We're not looking for the way out. We don't want to endure. We want the easy button. And never 
in the history of Christianity in the New Testament was there ever anything discussed about an easy button for the walk that we have to live. Paul now makes this application current to what he's been talking about, meats and eats, meats and eats. Meats offered to idols. And he gives them two very specific things. He talks about number one, therefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. And he talks about this cup of blessing. The cup of blessing that we bless is is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In verse 20, He's asking a question that food offered to idols, is it anything or is there any, is an idol, is it anything? The answer is simple. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to gods. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul introduces the subject of the Lord's table. And he's going to continue to hammer them on the Lord's table in the next chapter, in chapter 11, when he pretty much says, you guys coming together is absolutely fruitless. But he introduces this subject because there would be some commonality and understanding. When we talked about Corinth, the culture in Corinth and pagan events that happened, there were constant pagan sacrifices in their face. If they went to uh, big family functions, sacrifices would be made. If they went to weddings, sacrifices would be made. This was constantly in their face. And he equates and relates this so that they will understand about what we do in communing. That as we commune together in the bread and the fruit of the Lord, the, the blood of the Lord, sorry, The fruit of the vine, that's what I was trying to say. When we come together, we're not doing it just individually. We are communing together, and we're communing with Christ. Those that are communing in pagan sacrifices, they're communing together. There's no way you can be a part of both of those things. And he ends with a warning there. He says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? What did he already say about testing Christ and tempting Christ a few verses earlier? And he asked the question, are we stronger than than he? You know, there's multiple types of jealousy. You know, there's jealousy that's just envious. I'm jealous of Carrie's awesome voice. I will never have that voice. I'll never be able to sing like Carrie does. I'm envious of that. Not to the point where I'm like, I hate your guts. But the jealousy that he's talking about here is much greater. It's a wounded love. And when love is wounded, a lot of anger tends to come out. I don't really have any experience with this. I can't relate to this, to be completely honest. I've never had a situation in my 27, almost 20, 27, almost 28 years of, of marriage that 
I have had any type where I, of emotion where I'm wounded by my wife and jealous because of another man. I've just never had that. I don't understand it. Because I've got a wife that's pretty awesome. The only time that I ever really recall something like that happening was early on in our marriage. We were at a social gathering, and I was talking to a friend, and I looked across the room, and my wife was doing this. Like, get over here. And I realized there was a guy talking to him. And I, what I would assume, or talking to her, and what I assumed was him laying down his best lines. You know, did it hurt when you fell from heaven? And I, I'll be honest with you, <clears throat> I didn't get over there quickly. I took my time. Because I kind of wa- liked watching the whole her shutting him down. <laughs> I know that's kind of bad, but I really enjoyed it. So I really can't relate to that. But I do know there have been plenty of people that have been killed in this wounded love. Now, what Paul Dry is driving home here is how can you partake in this and then also want to partake in that pagan stuff and invoke the jealousy and the wrath of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul has already conceded that the eating of sacrifice of meat sacrificed to idol, excuse me, idols was in and of itself a matter of really indifference. Except for these two things. First, a regard for the welfare of others. And secondly, a regard for our own welfare. And he says, okay, so here's the situation you're in. And he gives them two things. He says, all things are lawful. And I want you to notice the quotations, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. This is very similar back to chapter 6, when he, there's quotations, and this is actually what the Corinthians are saying. When it talks about food being made for the belly and the belly for food, he's talking, he's doing the same thing here. All things are lawful. That's what they were saying. Well, all things are lawful. This is your group of people that had the knowledge, that understood that indifference when it came to idols and meats sacrificed to idols. Okay, all things are lawful, but does that mean that they're helpful? All things are lawful, but does that mean that they build up. Just because you're right doesn't make it right. Have you ever had that disagreement with your spouse and you're right? But after the disagreement, you don't really feel right? And it takes a little bit to get back to right? Please tell me I'm not the only one. I don't have anybody nodding their heads with me here on this. I'm not the only doofus in the room (laughs) that can't see that. Let no one seek his own good. So he says, do this. Whatever meat is sold in the market, don't ask where it came from. Take the meat and eat it. Scenario one. Scenario two. 
If an unbeliever invites you to their home and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is put in front of you. Don't ask if this was offered, a meat offered to an idol. Don't ask. But he does give a caveat with that. He says, this is, if someone says this has been offered in sacrifice, then we do not eat it. For the sake of the one who has informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now here's the, the, the principle here. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So both scenarios. Go to the market. Whatever's there, buy it, eat it. Don't ask where it came from. That's like us. Don't go ask what the back of the kitchen looks like. Just eat the food. If you're going to someone's house, eat eat whatever's put in front of you. But on the chance that they tell you that this was a sacrifice, don't eat it. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I guess I wouldn't lie to you, but as completely honest as I can be. When we read Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, nope, excuse me, Romans chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, subjects dealing with the same thing. Oftentimes, we come at it from a position of two things. A, to justify liberties that we have, or, or B, to justify telling other people why they shouldn't take part in liberties they have. And we're missing the point. We're missing the point. I want you to go back to the end of chapter 9 and why Paul said he was doing all this. To the Jew, I became the Jew. To those that are under the law, I became under the law. To the weak, I became the weak. For a very specific purpose. For the sake of the gospel. So that I might share in the blessings with all. He talks about self-denial and controlling the body. And at the end of all of it, he says, don't do it because of the conscience of somebody else. Every time the focus and the motivation, as Paul has dealt with this subject, has been somebody else. It has been about the gospel and souls and salvation. Not for his conscience, not for his sake, but for everybody else's sake. And he's driving that home to the church at Corinth, and he drives it home to us today. It's not in the pettiness of understanding what liberties we can take and what liberties we cannot take in. Because that's oftentimes what happens. What he's driving home is they need to understand and elevate their love for one another, get to know one another, and then ultimately make it about somebody else and not yourself, for crying out loud. Because that's exactly what we do, just like they did in Corinth and just like they did in Israel. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of someone else's conscience. So if you're hoping that I would conclude conclude this and tell you which liberties you can do and which liberties you cannot do, I'm not going to do that. But what I will tell you to do is I want you to 
consider the sake of the conscience of someone else. And not your own. Paul concludes this chapter in a very wonderful way. It's one of those, I've given you the principle, here's application, and then I'm going to drive it home with four points of personal application. The last few verses of chapter 10 and the first verse of chapter 11, I don't agree where they broke this off at. He says in chapter, concluding in chapter 10, so whatever you, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This isn't about meats. This isn't about drinks. What is it really ultimately about? It's about the glory of God. The very thing that Moses failed in whenever he didn't give proper glory to God. It's the same thing that we struggle with today. Whatever you do, whether it's food or drink, anything you do, you do it to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. You know that word, that phrase, give no offense? It's only used three times in the entirety of the New Testament. The other two times... It's blameless and a clear conscience. You need to be blameless before the Jew, before the Greek, before the church. You don't need to be the one that is the stumbling block, that causes the offense. What does that mean? You take into consideration other people's souls. Number three, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. When you're talking about liberties and freedoms and meats offered to idols, this is the crux of the problem. They're seeking their own advantage. Their own wants and their own desires. And he says... You got to get away from that. My objective as an apostle of the gospel is to always seek the advantage of others, their growth, their opportunity. He concludes it by saying, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I love that Paul concludes this with that simple statement. He says, do what I do, because I'm an imitator of Christ. There's no more beautiful way to sum up all this, these three chapters than those four things. God's glory, being blameless in the community and in the church, making sure that salvation is always the objective, and ultimately, what we all should be trying to do is imitate Christ. Those are the things that this is all about. The problems that they were having, whether it came to meats offered to idols, whether it was sexual immorality, whether it was them suing one another, 
whether it was what their division is following Paul or Apollos, if they could do those four things, none of those problems would be there. Can you imagine what we would be like here in the Amarillo Church of Christ if we took all those four principles and made that our daily objective? Could you imagine our growth? Could you imagine our spiritual growth? Could you imagine our relationships with one another being forged and bonded in stronger manners than which they've ever been in the past? Paul concludes that by talking about being an imitator of Christ. There's no greater way to punctuate a thought And I want you to think about all the things that Paul has talked about in this three chapters. What he's really getting at is their inability also to make sacrifices for the sake of other people. And in this punctuation, he shows what the true sacrifice was. I remind you of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 when he talks about having the mind of Christ who was equal with God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself a man. And that he humbled himself to death and became obedient to death, even the cross. Christ made sacrifices that you and I cannot relate to. Being on equal footing with God and becoming a man... We cannot relate to that in any way. Having to submit yourself to the very creation that you created and allow that creation to murder you, we cannot relate to that. But the imitation comes in understanding the sacrifice. All of that was given up for you, for your soul, and for your salvation. Christ came to this world, a lowly man, lived a poor man's life, was an outcast, and was ultimately beaten and murdered by his own creation. We can understand what that sacrifice is. That's what it means to be an an imitator of Christ. Not just understanding the sacrifice, but following in the sacrifice. The willingness to sacrifice. This morning, if you've not considered that sacrifice, what Christ did for you, And ultimately what He's willing to do for you for the rest of your life on into eternity. He invites you to understand it, to learn about it. Because on the other side of that understanding is salvation. When you're willing to understand what He has done for you and submit yourself as Christ submitted Himself and submitting yourself to the waters of baptism, 
You're raised the newness to a newness of life and full comprehension of that sacrifice. Also understand that sometimes we have problems, we have struggles. We need, we need a hug. We need a prayer. We need words of kindness. We can help you with that this morning. If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.